Good morning. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. I bring greetings from Southern Seminary and Clifton Baptist Church back in Louisville, Kentucky. And I've really enjoyed getting to know a number of you talking out in the foyer. What do you call it here? Some people are real particular. Foyer, narthex, lobby. Okay, I'll just use all three just so to offend no one. Uh, Praying for you in this time of discovery. And I do mean that. It's a time of discovery. You haven't gone through an interim time like this in your history. And so it's, it's an opportunity for you to depend on the Lord in a way you haven't had to before. But I, I trust God's going to provide just the right senior shepherd for you here. And I'll be praying now with, with a visual. It's always good to be on the ground, right? Because I've, I've heard of your church. Dr. Bruce Ware speaks so highly of you. I know he's had the privilege of being in this pulpit and and opening the word with you, uh, but to, there's nothing like being on the ground and having dinner with a Dave and Jan, like we did last night, and getting to know the people that are Cape Bible Chapel, so praying for you with a new sense of excitement for what God's going to do. Well, the best thing I can do for you in this interim time is to give you the gospel, to preach Christ crucified, and that's what I, I aim to do, but before I do, I want to pray so that God comes in power, so let's ask him to do that. Well, Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege, and I do mean privilege, of being here in your church. Lord Jesus, you are the great shepherd, and we are here as the the people of your pasture, this particular pasture here, and we're praying that you would shepherd us well this morning in your word, that God, you would use me in the power of your Holy Spirit to unfold this glorious text that speaks so highly of you, Lord Jesus. So, may I, by your grace, be resolved to know nothing among these people but you, Lord Jesus, and you crucified and risen and ascended for sinners like us. Thank you for your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I want you to take a moment with me and consider what you would do to sit down with a very important or smart person, someone that you would love to have dinner with, who would that be? Maybe you have a short list of people that you would love to have a, a, t- a chair at table with at a particular meal. Someone that might be really bright, someone that you've admired from a distance perhaps. Some of you, maybe Billy Graham, you'd want an evangelist. You want to sit down, a guy like Billy Graham that has done so much by the grace of God to win people to Christ. You'd want to sit down with that. I'd love to sit down with Billy Graham, or any number of gifted evangelists or theologians that you'd want to sit down with. Maybe some of you, though, younger crowd, uh, techies, maybe some of you love techs, you'd want to sit down with a a Bill Gates or a Sergey Brin, a Larry Page over at Google, or Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook, Facebook, all the rage, or maybe you want to go out to Apple's campus and sit down with Tim Cook and some of his designers, and you want to soak in wisdom from those tech geniuses. Or maybe some of you love investing. So you'd want to sit down with, say, a Warren Buffett and ask him how he secured so many billions of dollars and why in the world he still lives in Nebraska. You can live anywhere, but that's all right. We love Nebraska. Uh, or, Or maybe, maybe you're a political animal, you like politics, and you're watching all these people throw their name in the hat, right? So there's one or three or eight of these 50 now that are running, I don't know how many on the Republican side, might have another addition on the Democratic side. You know, Joe Biden's thinking he might give Hillary a run. Uh, 
We'll see. Maybe a political candidate you want to sit down with and pick his or her brain. Maybe closer to home. I did a little research on your town here. Uh, someone who I've really enjoyed his writings, Terry Teachout, was born here. I don't know if you know him. He's a cultural critic. Wrote a wonderful little biography of H.L. Mencken, a journalist. I've lost most of you now. Um, stay with me, please. But Terry Teachout, I'd love to have a cup of coffee with him here in his hometown. Or, not to he, the Limbaugh's. Maybe Rush Limbaugh. You know, he was born here. I, I didn't know that until recently. Maybe you'd want to sit down with him. So we could go through in our minds, a man or a woman, a group of people that we'd love to sit down with and have a meal with and soak in from them their wisdom, their insight on any number of things. But what if I propose to you that God is speaking and wants to actually invite you to table with him? Well, the absolutely stunning truth of the matter is that God has spoken and is speaking. He has acted to communicate with mankind in both salvation and judgment, and we could have a seat at his table, so to speak. You could, right now. Hopefully, that's what you believe you're doing every Sunday when someone like me has the audacity to get up in this pulpit and open the Word of God. Not the Word of Mike, but the Word of God. What would you do to make sure you had a seat at that table? How hard would you work to get a, a, a seat at the table of any number of people, human beings in this world, but how, how much would you change your schedule, do whatever it took to get at that table if God was the host? Would say, I want to speak to you. Let's sit down. I want, to, I want to pour into you my infinite wisdom. Come on, you can sit here. You can, come on. Would you do it? God is calling us to sit down with him and reason together from the scriptures because he still speaks through what he has spoken. So my prayer for this sermon, this is how I've been praying leading up to this Sunday, is that God would remind us anew of the astounding fact that he has spoken and is still speaking through his word. That should blow our minds. That God Almighty aims to communicate with us this morning, His creatures. And He does. He does. But and I want us to remember this anew so that we have ears to hear and then more faithfully heed the Lord's command to what? To discipleship. In other words, to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him. You won't do that if you're not hearing God. So, God, give us ears to hear. To that end, if you're not there already, I want you to turn to Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3. And, and this text is going to help fulfill that prayer of mine, that we would be astounded anew at a God who speaks, at a God who communicates to us His creatures. So, Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Let me read them just to get them out before us. And if you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. I, I quote Scripture a lot. So just, just listen, and I'll, just, I'll keep you in this text whether you have your Bible open or not. I hope you do, but if not, just listen. The author to the Hebrews writes this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature, 
and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, some of you like outlines. Let me give you an outline. That's where I'm going. I have two headings to the rest of this sermon. The first, an astonishing affirmation. I want to look with you at an astonishing affirmation. And if it's not astonishing to you right now, pray that it would be. Pray that this wouldn't be ordinary, what this text is affirming about God. So, an astonishing affirmation. Secondly, an all-important question I want to ask of this text. Once I I show you the affirmation, I want to ask a question, an all-important question of this text. Okay, let's take each one in turn. First, an astonishing affirmation, and it is this. God has spoken. That's it. But that's everything. God has spoken. And that's the affirmation of this text. Look with me at verses 1 to the front end of 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke. Underliners, you can underline that. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, here it is again, He has spoken to us by His Son. So I want to linger for some minutes with you over this idea It's here that God has spoken. God has communicated to us His creatures. An astonishing affirmation. To this audience of Jewish Christians, the author recognizes that long ago, God spoke to our ancestors. How does he say it? At many times and in many ways. So there's there's a time period before our time when God was speaking. He spoke. He did it many times and in many ways. And let me just stir you up by way of remembrance to your Old Testament. How did God speak under the Old Covenant? How did He speak in the Old Testament? Well, God appeared to Abram, you remember this, in human form, and to Jacob as an angel. He spoke to Moses first through a burning bush, and then at Sinai in thunder and lightning, and with the voice of a trumpet. He whispered. To Elijah. Don't you love that? Remember that text? He whispered to Elijah, showing different ways of communicating. And and then he communicated, though, to Ezekiel by visions and Daniel with dreams. And to set Balaam straight, he he, he even spoke through a donkey, right? So many ways, many times, many ways, God communicated. He spoke to his people. But notice the contrast that our text gives us. Contrast this with now. So that, that's many times, many ways God spoke to our, our fathers. But now, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. So God's ultimate speech, according to this text, in these last days, and what are those? What are the last days? This time between the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ. So this period of time between the advents, God has spoken in His Son, by His Son. And and the contrast here is to exalt the the preeminence of Christ, to show His supremacy in terms of God's speech. So old times, many ways, many, many times He spoke. But in these days, our ears have to be perked to Jesus. That's how He's speaking to us now. Ultimately, finally, in Jesus. The contrast, as I mentioned, is intended here. How words do this? Words are intended here to exalt Jesus. 
to put him in a place of prominence before us. In these last days, Jesus. Jesus. Now, step back with me from this text and consider, so we don't just run by it, consider the wonder, and I do mean wonder, of a God who communicates with his creatures. This should blow our mind that, that God spoke and God speaks to us even now this morning. There's an impulse in God to be known, to be heard, to clearly communicate with us. Do you love Isaiah 48, 16, where God says through the prophet, from the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. I've gone public with my word of grace and mercy to you. Don't you love that God didn't just say it in a corner or behind closed doors or leave it, this mystery, not unfolded so we didn't, didn't hear or can't know? But God most dramatically went public in His Son so that we hear, so that the world hears a message. What message? A message of salvation. To ensure that the very public record is there, we were given the Scriptures of both the Old and the New Testaments. In them we see Jesus, not only His words, but also His saving actions, especially His life, death, resurrection, and exaltation for sinners. We look at the forecast of this in the Old Testament, don't we? And then the interpretation of it through the apostles in the New Testament. The Bible, brothers and sisters, is God's speech to us. Indeed, as J.I. Packer has written, the Bible is God preaching. So when you open this book, God is preaching a sermon to you. He aims to be heard. He aims to be known. He want, there's an impulse in God to communicate with us words of life. God is not silent. And what is he saying? Well, he's saying things like Isaiah 55, 1 to 3. Let me remind you of them. Where God calls us, come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. That's what he's saying to us and he wants us to hear him. Or in the New Testament. Do you remember the Mount of Transfiguration? In Mark chapter 9. Do you remember that voice that came bursting through the, the chaos, if you, if you will, for, for Peter and as he's watching Moses and Elijah and he's wondering, what am I doing here? And Jesus becomes beautifully white and shining. And then this voice says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. That's what God is saying to us this morning. Listen to the son that I love, for in him is life. There's a great implication of this. This astounding, astonishing affirmation that God is a God who speaks and is speaking through His Word. The great implication is a missionary implication, isn't it? I mean, do you feel this? The, the great implication of a God who is not silent is that we ought not to be silent. If God aims to be heard, you have to say, how is He aimed to be heard today? Through preachers, whether in a pulpit or in a coffee shop. 
or on a campus, you're going to have, what, 15,000 students coming back here in about a week or two? How many of them don't know Jesus? How many of them need to hear? And how are they going to hear unless someone goes and tells them, oh, blessed are the feet of those who bring good news to campuses like southeastern Missouri State? Is that right? Did I get that right? Go and bring good news. There is an impulse in God to be known, to be heard, and there should be an impulse in us to go and to give people the word of the Lord. Having heard, in other words, what do we do? What do we do with what we hear? We proclaim Christ to the nations. Isn't that the Great Commission? Isn't that the Great Commission? Go therefore, Jesus says, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We should feel that impulse in us. And wonder upon wonder, brothers and sisters, that God has chosen his people to make this message known. We're not so unlike Paul where he says in 2 Corinthians 5.20 that we are ambassadors for Christ. And then you know the second part of that verse? God making his appeal through us. That's crazy. But he does it. God is making his appeal to the world through us, his church. And what's the appeal? Be reconciled. Be reconciled to me, God says. And you can do that in Christ. He has dealt with the enmity that stands between him and us. Trust him. Be reconciled. For in Christ, God has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the very righteousness of God in him. But God's appealing to the world through us, his church. I hope we feel, and I trust you feel, that missionary impulse here at Cape Bible. Well, that's my first point of two, I guess you could say. This astonishing affirmation that God is a God who speaks. He's spoken and he's speaking, even now through his word. And he's done it, you can see from the text here, ultimately, finally, in his son. So it's in Jesus that God is speaking to the world. Saying, look at him. You want to know my message for the world? Look at Jesus, his person, his work. But... I live where you live. So I want to pause here before I even go in. This is my all-important question. Why would anyone want to listen to Jesus? Okay, th- say you're with me and you see in the text, yeah, God has spoken finally, ultimately, in his son. But I, what I mean by I live where you live, I just know there's, there's a million voices in a week. It's hyperbole. But I, there's a million voices in a week competing for your attention. It might be a spouse. It might be your children might be authorities at work or, or, or your teachers. I mean, everybody wants your attention. Advertisers, right? How many pop-ups on your smartphone today alone will be, oh, listen to me, listen to me. Somebody wants to sell you something. So every day you're, you're bombarded with voices. Listen to me. Give your ears to me. And in that chaos, and it can be chaos, Jesus aims to be heard. God is speaking through him. And, I, and I, want to, I want you to see from this text why it's so compelling to give your ears to him and him alone that all that noise just falls away and you can hear from God in Christ this morning. So ask it with me of this text. According to this text, why would anyone want to listen to Jesus? What's so great about him? 
that you would want to give your attention to him in all the noise that comes your way just in a day. Well, I want to, as you can see from your outline, if you're an outline person, I'm compelled to listen to Jesus because of who he is and what he's done. And this text shows beautifully his person and his work. And I want to look at his person and his work as a means of answering the question, why would anyone want to listen to Jesus? Well, you'll see if you walk through this text with me as we, as we meditate on his person and his work. Okay, let's take each one in turn. First, why would anyone want to listen to Jesus? Well, because of who he is. Because of who he is. According to this text, look first at verse 2 where it says that Jesus is the heir of all things. It's getting at his person. Who is he? He's heir of all things. Verse 2, whom he appointed heir of all things. So you see it there. Jesus, you see, has been given everything. Everything has been given by the Father to the Son. He owns it all. And you could think about it first in terms of us, a people, for himself. John 6, 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me, gives me, will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So I'm hearing fulfillment of the new covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, really in the new covenant, a people more numerous than the stars in the heavens and the sand and the seashores are going to come to Jesus, given to Jesus, and he's not going to drive any of them away. He's going to hold us, but all that the Father gives me will come to me. It's going to happen. But you hear he's heir of a people. He's heir of the church, a people more numerous than any we could count. From every tribe and tongue and nation, and people, God gives to Jesus this love gift from the Father to the Son, a people that are going to, for all eternity, mirror him as much as fallen, redeemed human beings can. The, the chief compliment that the Father could give to the Son is imitation by a people that you can't count for all eternity. And so you see, he's heir of this. He inherits this. And then not just a people, but look at, again at, at the Great Commission. Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, given to me. He's given me all authority. There is no higher authority than Jesus. He has it all. He's Lord of everything. Lord over all. No rival to Jesus. Paul echoes this in Philippians 2, 9, when he says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So there's just no name higher than the name of Jesus. No authority greater than the authority of Jesus. He's heir of everything, every power he's heir of. Jesus is the fulfillment, isn't he, of Psalm 2.8, where it says, Ask of me, and I will give the nations to you as, an, as a heritage and the ends of the earth as your possession. God's done that in his son. He said, it's all yours. You're heir of everything. Now, that's beautiful enough. And yet, you know from your Bible that if you're in Christ through faith this morning, what does that make you, among other things? A co-heir. I saw somebody mouth it. You know that. This is, 
the most incredible application I could give you of this. If he's heir of all things, if you're in Christ, you're a co-heir with him of everything. Everything that is Jesus's is yours if you're in him, if you're in him. Let me read it to you from Romans 8 where Paul writes, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then what? Heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. He's heir of all things. If you're in Christ through faith, you're heir of all things. Then in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says it this way, So let no one boast in men. Don't boast in men. For all things are yours. Don't you get it? You don't have to play the compare game. You don't have to try to keep up with the Joneses. Don't compare yourself to people. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. If you're in Christ, the one who owns everything, you're a co-heir with him. Well, friends, this is really practical to me, and I hope it's really practical to you. Some of you know a little bit about my biography. Some of you don't, so I'll just share with you. February 2nd, 2014, my four children and I huddled prayerfully and with tears in our eyes around their mother and my wife, Julia, as she breathed her last after a five-year battle with breast cancer. This doctrine of co-heirs with Christ is really practical especially when everything on earth is being taken from you. And it was being taken from Julia. Her husband, her children, every earthly possession, which weren't many, but gone as she was starting to breathe her last. But through tears, do you think we weren't singing? Be thou my vision, thou my inheritance, now and always. Always. If you have Jesus, you have everything. And some of you might be going through a trial like that right now. Realize you're a co-heir with Christ. Cancer's not going to have the final word in your life. And if you're not going through that right now, take this as preventative medicine so your faith doesn't grow weary. You don't lose heart when that day does come, because it will, unless he comes again. All of us will go through something similar. And what will you have in those dying moments. Everything because you'll have Christ. I want to listen to Jesus because he's heir of all things. But I also want to listen to Jesus because he's the agent of creation. You see that here? He's the agent of creation. Look at verse 2. Through whom also he created the world. So he's heir of all things. Now I realize He's also creator of all things. We know it from this text as well as John 1, 3. All things were created through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And we know the him in John 1 is Jesus. The word came, became flesh and dwelled among us. So, so nothing that's been made, including you and I, has been made apart from Christ. It's all been made through him and for him. All of creation is to redound to the glory of of Christ. He's creator. Colossians 1.16 says it similarly. For by him all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. And we know, back to our text, from verse 3, that 
Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. So he's not only creator, but he's also sustainer. He creates everything, and then he decides how long everything gets to stay in motion, including you and I. There's a great implication of this for the church. I look at the American evangelical church, and sometimes if my faith wasn't in a sovereign Lord, I would, I would lose heart. I would lose heart at some of the ways we've domesticated Jesus. But this doctrine, what we see here, is a safeguard against minimizing our Christology or, or pushing Jesus down into the image of man. It's this creator-creature distinction. We have to keep it in view, don't we? Jesus is not my homeboy. He's not merely a friend, though he is that. He's not my buddy, and God forbid I think of him as my co-pilot. Okay, like those ridiculous bumper stickers. Beware of domesticating Jesus or making him in our image. We're to be renewed according to his image. Jesus is creator and sustainer of all things, including us. We know from Acts 17 that in him we, move, we live and move and have our being. And Paul went on to say, he gives you, God does life and breath and all things, right? We exist because God said so. And we continue to exist according to His will. The Lord Jesus Christ is creator and sustainer of all things. So, I am standing before you this morning because God in Christ has said, Sustain Mike! If he decides not to, I will drop dead right now. And what a way to go. It's preaching. That would be a good way to go. That would be a good way to go. But he's, he's sustaining me as I preach. You're sitting there with hearts that are beating, that lungs, lungs that are working, and you're going to have limbs that are going to get you out of here soon, maybe. Because he says so. He's sustaining you. Do you feel that utter dependency on the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? He is glorified, as Jonathan Edwards once wrote, in your and my dependence and do you feel it? According to this text, he's creator and sustainer of all things, including you and me. Well, he's heir of all things in his person. He's creator and sustainer of all things in his person. So right there, I want to listen to Jesus. Why do I want to listen to him? But if, I, if, if you're still not persuaded to listen to him, the third aspect of his person that I see in this text, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And that warrants our attention. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's the author's longer way of saying Jesus is God. But I love his language here, so I want to linger over it for a minute or so. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, what does that mean? And the exact imprint of his nature. The word translated radiance is not to be understood in the passive sense as if Jesus were merely the reflection of God. That's not what it means. Rather, it should be understood in the active sense like light radiating from a source. Jesus is God shining forth. That's why Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. It's, it's God shining into our sin-darkened world. 
That's who Jesus is. The exact imprint, the text says, of God's nature or being. In other words, Jesus is the embodiment of God such that God is made manifest in Christ. He's the embodiment of God. It's John 1.18 where John writes, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He's the exposition of God such that you see Jesus, you see God. You see God. There's a great implication of this, and I've just said it, but let, let, me, let me try to press it still more. To see Jesus is to see God. So many people in this world today some not professing Christians will say, I, I want to know God. I want to see God. The astounding truth of the gospel is you want to see God, you want to hear from God, look to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Isn't this what our Lord says in John 10, verse 30, when he says, I and the Father are what? One. One. That, that's, a, that's more of a propositional truth statement. It might not be, be warm on your heart when you hear that, but but he is. He's making a propositional truth statement. He says, I and the Father are one. I take that to mean if you see Jesus, you see God. In other words, the Father's God, Son is God, they're one, they're God. So I, but, but like I said, sometimes that doesn't land with the warmth and, and, and hit our affections like we wanted to. So we, we go to narrative and we watch real people wrestle with real things like, who's Jesus? And we watch them come to realize who he is. Remember Philip? Poor Philip. Jesus was so patient with Philip. He's so patient with us, isn't he? But in John 14, you remember Philip? How long he'd been walking with Jesus, perhaps as many as three years, and he says, would you just show us the Father and that'll be enough for us? Okay, all, this, all these parables, all these things, they don't really make sense. Would you just show us the Father? In other words, show us God. And that's enough for us. That's, that's what I ask of you, Jesus. And then so tenderly, I take it to be tender, Jesus looks at Philip and says, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Oh, Philip, open the eyes of your heart and believe who's in your midst. Or Thomas, I love Thomas, don't you? Doubting Thomas. Remember Thomas, this is after the death of Christ. He's in the room with the other disciples and others, and he says, I'm not going to believe unless I see the, the scars and I see the holes. You know, unless he just shows up and shows me those, forget, I'm not going to believe. Don't you love the sense of humor of our Lord? He said, okay, Thomas, that's what you want? Hello. He shows up. He says, Thomas, look, put your hand here. Put your hand here. Feel my side. Look at me. And what does Thomas do? He does exactly what we should all do if that happens. Fall on your face and declare, my Lord and my God. He knew Jesus at that moment was no mere man. But he was God in the flesh. Do you want to see God? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and behold the infinite one. I want to listen to Jesus because of first who he is. He's heir of all things. He's creator and sustainer, and he's 
God of very God. We echo the Nicene Creed with the church historic. We say, very God of very God is Jesus. But I don't only want to listen to him because of who he is, but because of what this God of very God has done. His work is on display in this text. Would you look at it with me? First, in terms of Jesus being our sin-bearing substitute. You see it in verse 3? After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So, don't, don't just run past the front end of verse 3. After making purification for sins, so you, you might be tempted to run past that because after we're, we're clued with that word after to something coming after that that I want to know about. Well, after he made purification for sins, but we don't read it that way. You don't want to read it kind of glossing over like, after he made purification for sins, yeah, 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 but then what do you do? He sat at the right hand of the throne of, of Almighty God. But I want to pull the brakes and linger over this work of Christ in the purification of our sins. The author to the Hebrews loves this idea, this reality, that Jesus purified us from our sins. He'll echo it in Hebrews 7, 27, where he says, Jesus has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So it's saying the same. He made purification for sins. In chapter 7, the author says, he offered himself up once for all. And then he comes back to this theme of purification for sins in chapter 10, verse 12, when he says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus made purification for sins. The one who is God of very God cleanses us from all sin. Well, what does it mean for Jesus to make purification for sins? In other words, how, how do he do it? And we could assert it, and it's here. It says, after he made purification for sins, but how did he do that? Do we marvel at how he did it? Well, I think one of the most concise, clear, efficient verses, really, that explains how Christ did this is Colossians 2.14. Let me read it to you. He makes purification for sins by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's it. That's everything. That's how he makes purification for sins. You and I, brothers and sisters, we come up against the law of God in our flesh, and what does it do to us? What does the law do to us? It kills us by pronouncing us guilty before God. You know the climax of the Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Any perfect people in this room? And the law comes up against us like a mirror. And we look at ourselves and we see, guilty. I fall so far short of the glory of God. I'm a wreck. I'm undone. What am I going to do? And Jesus, this is the gospel. He comes and he lives the perfect life in accordance with the law of God. And then he dies the perfect death, receiving the wrath due us. So he takes that record of debt, Mike's record of debt, And he says, I lived the perfect life that you could never live. 
And I'm going to receive the holy, just wrath of the Father that should be on you, Mike, but I'm going to take it and I'm going to absorb it. I'm going to swallow it. I'm going to take it away from you and put your sins away in the process. So God is just and the justifier of wicked sinners like me. He nails it to the cross, that record of my debt, and he pronounces me free, free from the guilt that I bore because he paid it all. He makes purification for sins. And I want to ask you, does this amaze you? Or have you grown such that you expect this from God? Of course he forgives me. Look at me. Wouldn't you want to forgive me? This should amaze you that the infinitely holy one took on flesh, dwelled among us, and died a sinner's death for you and for me, Christian. Does this amaze you? That the one we saw minutes ago as heir, creator, and God of very God would condescend to become your sin-bearing substitute. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay his life down for his friends. That's what Jesus has done for his church. Well, I want to listen to Jesus not only because of who he is, but what he has done. He's purified us from all our sins. And now look at his work in terms of his exaltation. See it in our text? Not only do we see Jesus' death here in this text, but also his exaltation. After making purification for sins, verse 3, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is incredible. We linger over this for a minute or so. He sits down. What does he do after he makes purification for sins? He does what he told his disciples he was going to do. He's going to return to, to the Father. He's going to ascend. The ascension, this exalted place at the Father's right hand, he is not only our sin-bearing substitute, but a ruling and reigning Lord of all. So we see in his exaltation the kingship of Jesus. Jesus pays for all our sins, and then he's ascended to the right hand of God, and now King Jesus is ruling and reigning as I preach. He, Psalm 115.3, sits in the heavens and does all his good pleasure. And that should hearten you this morning. As you look out on this world that we live in, and you, I don't know how you get your news, you got your feeds, and you're getting, you read these news stories. You, if you're not careful, you're tempted to lose heart. And look at this chaos going all around us, and this, this sin and this rebellion, this unrighteousness. What, what are we going to do? Well, I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to remember that King Jesus is on his throne. And there's no other name under heaven that is greater than his name. No one can stay his hand. No one can stop him from doing all his good pleasure. And even now, as we gather, he is ruling and reigning. He is the exalted, transcendent Lord of glory. No rival. Think of that. No rival. We have rivals all the time. Jesus has no rival, does all his good pleasure. He's exalted at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's what it means to be at the right hand. It's a position of authority, a position of power, such that he has no rival. There's an application I want to make of this. Because if you step back and go, okay, I see this exaltation of Jesus, but it feels very distant to me. 
He's exalted at the Father's right hand. He's glorious. But what about me sitting in this pew? What about this, the struggles you have today? The incredible wonder upon wonder of the gospel is that this transcendent God who is exalted to the Father's right hand knows the number of hairs on your head, knows when a sparrow falls, knows exactly what you're thinking right now, knows exactly what you're enduring right now, knows exactly what he's called you into this afternoon and tonight and this week. His eyes on the sparrow, and he watches over you and over me. The point is this, this transcendent, glorious God, what does he do in this exalted state? After, as the ruling and reigning Son of God, what does Jesus do for his own? He advocates for us. He advocates for us. And I want to go here because the book of Hebrews warrants it. The author loves to declare this exalted state of Jesus, but he's quick to add that he ever lives to make intercession for us. When I was caring for Julia as a cancer caregiver, I, in my imperfect state, would wake up every morning and say, God, by your grace, I want to advocate for Julia. You know this. You, 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 need to ad, you need an advocate when you're a patient. So I would be that guy. Sometimes Julia didn't like me being that guy because in my fallenness, I would get frustrated. So doctors, nurses, this is your only patient, right? No, no but you want them to act that way. But I would get up, and it, what a joy, what a privilege what a responsibility to feel to get up and say, I'm going to advocate for Julia today, not just at the cancer center, but in all of life for as long as God gives me the privilege. But I would do that imperfectly. And I was powerless to help her in so many ways. But Jesus, our advocate, is not powerless. And he lacks no wisdom in how to love us perfectly and has no one to get in his way from advocating for us. Hebrews 7.25 puts it this way. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This exalted one interceding for you even now, saint. He wakes up, and you know, God doesn't wake up. But he gets up every day, God does, and says, I'm going to advocate for you such that you get to glory. Well, I close by reminding you that God has spoken ultimately and finally in his son. Question is, are we listening? Are we listening? And my prayer is that whoever has ears to hear, let him hear and give your life, this ransomed life that you have, give it wholeheartedly to him. Yes, by his grace, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him wherever he leads in this earth. And ultimately, you know where you're leading, where he's leading you, to glory, to glory. So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this reminder that Jesus is the only voice we really need to hear, that we really need to pay heed to. And so, God, we're asking you to give us ears to hear. Open the eyes of our hearts to see. Open the ears of our hearts to hear the wonder of your gospel. So we give you more glory. 
and get all the help we need on this pilgrimage to our celestial city that you purchased for us with the blood of the Lamb. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.